You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Welcome back to the study of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast in the book of Revelation and has recourse, I think, to places in Daniel and maybe other places in the Bible as well. In the first part of this series, uh, it was more or less an intro. Uh, congratulations to anybody that made it through that podcast. I, I felt like I was you know, uh, just rambling and, and very frustrated and not being able to articulate all the problems and things like that. So I'll try to make this one a little more smooth, but it is going to be kind of more of the same. I still am going to more or less bounce around talking about some random thoughts I've been having about this. I still don't know what it is. Um, originally, this particular uh, section, part one, I guess you'd say, uh, was going to look over the traditional views. And by that, I mean the revived Roman Empire view, which I'll explain in more detail in a minute, and the revived Islamic Empire view, which is kind of an offshoot of that, but takes a lot of the same uh, stuff. And in doing that and trying to research that for this week, I realized that even that is kind of too big of a bite to take out of this. And it just seemed a little overwhelming because what I really needed to do was go back and study every single aspect of this before I can come to this conclusion. So what I think I'm going to do after the uh, Christmas break is to start on individual chapters, improve what I know as I go along. So I need to redo Daniel 2 in a sense, Daniel 7 and uh, Daniel probably 11 and all certainly all the Revelation chapters. Daniel 8 is another one that we're going to talk about today, which is very confusing. Um, so... I think that if you get something wrong back there, you're going to have bad output when you get to Revelation 17 and you got to figure out what the five of fallen are, unless they are completely divorced from Daniel 7, which I think might be a possibility. So let me start off and just go through some of my notes. I converted this into a mind map and I just feel a lot better about this. Every book I've ever written, anything I've had in my head like this, I've made these little mind maps and they just... They just are such a relief. Like I literally have not been able to sleep at night because it's like, it's just screaming for this to be organized in some way that I can like let it be organized and not keep it all in my head. Anyway, so this is going to help me be a little more organized in this podcast too, I think. But I am going to more or less randomly skip around at first. One of the things that I thought was interesting uh, this week was the concept in Daniel 7. Remember, Daniel 7 is where those four beasts, the one like a lion, one like a leopard, one like a bear, the diverse beasts come uh, out of the sea. One of the things that was interesting was the term that it used which was the great sea. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, I know, in, especially in Revelation 13, where we have what appears to be the combined beast, one uh, a, a seven-headed, ten-horned uh, beast, one that looks like a leopard, a bear, uh, uh, <clears throat> and a lion at the same time, so it seems like this same beast, but combined, but that's an open question at this point. But nevertheless, that beast comes out of the sea there. And I've heard a lot of people make a lot of uh, assumptions about the fact that it came out of the sea. I've, If you may have noticed in my commentaries and stuff, I kind of leave that alone a little bit because I feel like if you have this right, 
that that should fall into play. Um, I don't like building doctrine from it because, for example, in Revelation 13, it just uses the word see there. Now, as you might imagine, see is one of the most common concepts in the Bible because it's it's the ocean. It's it's there's so many different poetic uses for the concept of a sea in the Bible. You could make a big list. And a lot of people zero in on one of those and say, well, the sea is like the Gentiles and the earth is like the uh, non-Gentiles or something like that. That's one I've heard a lot. Uh, the abyss is another one because you can find uses of the sea being like the abyss. That is to, you know, to say an aspect of, of uh, hell. So, and you could do that with others, and people have done that with others. Great multitudes and peoples and nations. It's used as a sea later on in the, when the angel interprets it in Revelation 17. But the interesting thing is back here in Daniel 7, it uses the term the great sea. The great sea is not a term that is used very often in the, in the Bible. According to the Blue Letter Bible, it's, the exact phrase is only used 15 times. Um, it is... Speaking of the Mediterranean Sea, it's very clear. Um, some of the verses maybe aren't as clear, but they're certainly not using it in the kind of poetic sense. They're talking about a literal sea. But I'd say the vast majority of these, maybe 13, 14, are obviously talking about the Mediterranean Sea. So you can be very comfortable uh, understanding the first part of Daniel with these four beasts coming out of the Great Sea is that they're coming out of the Mediterranean. There's just not the kind of ambiguity that, that you can maybe have in Revelation 13 when it just says the word sea. But the really interesting thing about this is later on when the angel interprets this, uh, this vision from Daniel, it says the four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. That seems to me to be saying at least that you cannot be making a big deal about the sea and the earth and these passages. If you're building doctrine on, it says the sea here, but not the earth. Well, the Bible uses them interchangeably in Daniel 7. And furthermore, if you are of the mind that Daniel 7 interprets Revelation 13 and that seven-headed beast that's rising out of the sea there, if you buy the idea that the great sea in Daniel 7 means the Mediterranean, then now you have to interpret the sea in Revelation 13 as a reference to the Mediterranean. Um, I would say that it's logical in one sense. If you look at a map of all the usual suspects of these kingdoms, it's very clear that these world empires were Mediterranean empires. That's essentially the thing that binds all of these empires together, is that they just went around the Mediterranean and conquered the whole thing. Look, look at a map of Medo-Persia. Look at a map of Assyria or Babylon or Egypt, the Egyptian empire specifically, um, or Greece or Rome. It's their Mediterranean uh, kingdoms. And so it's logical, at least, to think that. Uh, again, I'm not trying to draw conclusions right now. I'm just saying that that makes sense, and I'm going to tread lightly, and always have to some extent treaded lightly on building doctrine out of uh, symbols that have multiple meanings in the Bible, such as the word sea. I also have some notes here about Daniel 8, and I think I want to do an entire podcast on Daniel 8, so I don't want to go into just all the details now, and it might be frustrating for some of you because I'm going to presume that a lot of you know a lot about this chapter, but I'll give you the brief thumbnail here. This is another vision of Daniel uh, during the, the reign of King Belshazzar, which is the last uh, uh, king of Babylon, probably shortly before he saw the writing on the wall and all that stuff. This is a vision of a ram, uh, which 
had two horns. One was high, but one was higher than the other. The angel later says that this ram is a picture of Medo-Persia, that it was going around charging westward, northward, and southward. Nobody could stand before him. And then a male goat came out of the west, and he had a notable horn between his eyes, and that, that horn was really, that uh, uh, ram was, goat rather, was really swift. He uh, conquered the ram with his powerful wrath. But out of that, uh, that horn was all of a sudden broken off, the notable horn, and four other horns sprang up in its place. And out of one of those four, uh, four horns, a uh, little horn came up, and the little horn kind of has some Antichrist language. So I'm going to read a little bit of the little horn language in Daniel 8. Remember, there's another little horn in Daniel 7, the chapter before this. A lot of that language is very specific to the Antichrist. This is a little less so, but I'll read what it says. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the hosts of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. It will be it will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me for uh, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And then the angel goes on to do some interpretation interpretation of this in which it says specifically that we're talking about the Medo-Persians for the first uh, uh, beast, the, the ram, and the goat is the king of Greece. The four horns are four horns that come out of that, uh, the kingdom of Greece, basically, which we understand to be uh, 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 Alexander's four generals. And then the notable horn comes out of that, which has the Antichrist language, but in one sense is obviously Antiochus Epiphanes. Everybody agrees that the, the little horn in this chapter, again, different from Daniel 7 to probably a certain extent, is definitely talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. That's where I stand for sure. I know the little horn in Daniel 8 is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. I know it. Some of that language is, 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 is obviously talking about him. It bleeds over into talking about the Antichrist, especially with some of that talk about the trampling the hosts and the, the stars to the ground and the prince of hosts. That seems a little too grandiose for, for, uh, for Antiochus, unless it's language about his blasphemy or whatever. But in one sense, this Antichrist language is not as the, the, the quintessential Antichrist language that seems to be so carefully cultivated in Daniel. Things like the warring on the saints, the three and a half years, the, the names of blasphemy, all the things that Revelation picks up, those, those things that we know for sure are speaking of the Antichrist, and in some cases, definitely not even talking about Antiochus. Uh, another thing that, that gets me here is the 2300 evenings and mornings. Now, this is a long scenario. I talk about this in my uh, commentary, of which, is, by the way, is free now. I'll talk more about that in a minute, uh, or maybe another uh, episode here, but I'm making all my books free, and I'll talk about it in a bit. But the 2300 evenings and mornings is, I can make fit perfectly with Antiochus. It's where we get Hanukkah from in the intertestamental period. Antiochus uh, does his abomination of desolation. We know exactly when that happened. We know 
evening and mornings is speaking of the two daily sacrifices, which happen twice a day, uh, the evening sacrifice and the morning sacrifice. Uh, so essentially half that, what is that? 1,150 uh, days, well, 1,150 day period. And we know Josephus gives us a calculation of the, the days, which had basically intercalary months at the time, 30-day months with intercalary months, and then, of course, the 15-day the period between the actual dates that are, that are mentioned other places in the Bible. And you come up and you can make this work. That's where Hanukkah comes from, is that this, this worked. Um, but that doesn't fit with anything I know about the Antichrist. Now, we have a lot of information, especially from Daniel, about... Uh, some timing with regard to the Antichrist and the midpoint. We know, of course, 1,260 days or three and a half uh, years or 42 months. That's the 70th week of Daniel part of it. But we also know because of Daniel 12, the last part of Daniel 12, that there is a 30-day period and a 45-day period after that 1,260 days. So 1,290 days and what is the 1,335 days or whatever. But this would require a 1,150-day period to be associated with the Antichrist, which is not something that I believe you can find anywhere else in the Bible, not the 45-day the period, the 30-day period, or anything like that. So it very well may be true, but there's just no—in other words, it works for Antiochus, but it doesn't work for the Antichrist, at least what we know of about it. So there's that problem. There's the problem that this doesn't have the kingdom of God language, that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 that seem to connect them. And of course, the big couple confusing things here is that it would mean that the Antichrist would come uh, after the Grecian Empire. I mean, why, why skip Rome at this point? And it's just one of those things that's frustrating about this topic. Why use the language of the little horn about this when... That's so seems to be so carefully used in uh, Daniel seven in a concept about maybe timing or something. The little horn in this case comes out of the four uh, no, uh, horns that broke off from Alexander the Great, but in Daniel seven, the little horn comes out of the ten horns that's on that final beast, which that final beast is not Greece in any way, shape, or form. So it's just one of those things that just show you how complicated this thing can be. My gut feeling, though, with Daniel 8 is that it is to be understood mostly and primarily as a prophecy, an important prophecy that Daniel made about Antiochus Epiphanes. I think that we, we always look at the abomination of desolation as sort of something that we see as the future, but there were two future events at the time this was penned. Antiochus had not yet uh, done the first abomination of desolation when Daniel wrote it, and I feel like this is more for those people uh, that would experience that first abomination. Hey, the temple sacrifices have stopped. What does this mean for us? Hey, there's a prophecy here that says in 1,150 days or 2,300 evenings and mornings, it will be restored. The weakness of that view is the the language that gets a little too grandiose. The great as the prince of hosts, it became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. Uh, some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It's possible that either the sort of Antichrist language must necessarily bleed over a little bit, um, or it may be that... Um, 
you know, we're just not to take too much into it. I think that there's a lot of that going on with, with these kind of types. You can always carry it too far. If you say, well, the king of Tyre is definitely Satan because it mentioned Tyre. Well, yeah, you can take it too far for a couple of verses, but then you got to lay off it or else it's going to just cause all these contradictions. So there could be something like that going on. But in any, any case, I think that there's a lot to discover here in Daniel 8. Uh, so we'll, I'll probably do a, a podcast just on it. All right, so let's look at some of the traditional views, and by that I mean the sort of revived Roman Empire view and the Islamic Empire view, things that have been proposed mostly recently, but there are some good things and some bad things about them, and I'm going to go over some of that. I need to do, as I say, more on this, but this is just some of my initial thoughts, thinking about it over the last week. The And when I say the traditional view of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, by that I really mean the traditional view of all these chapters. What do they do with Daniel 2, Daniel 7? What do they do with uh, Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 specifically? That, 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 that will inform sort of what I mean by the traditional view. So it's not just Revelation 17, what do you do with the five has fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. I mean, what is their take on all these seemingly related passages and, and do they fit? And the traditional revived Roman Empire view has Daniel 2, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw with uh, multiple medals, as representing Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, which I totally agree with. And then they say that the feet and toes, which are at once part of the legs of iron, but they say it's distinct. It's not just the end of Rome. It's, uh, it's some new thing that they call the revived Roman Empire. In Daniel 7, they do something fairly similar. They will say that uh, it is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and revived Rome. Uh, but in that case, they'll say that the little horn is the person of the Antichrist, which I also agree with. But it is important that they, they understand that little horn and in, in the revived Roman Empire that comes up out of the ten horns to be the person of the Antichrist. And that, that's important, and I mention that here because that's often thrown away by the time they get to Revelation 7. But here they understand the little horn to be the person of the Antichrist. So then they take all that to Revelation 17, where they will say that the seven-headed ten-horned beast is is that five have fallen, one is, are to be represented as, as typically, they'll say nations here, not kings, but they're a little, they're a little wishy-washy on that, but they'll traditionally say that the seven-headed, ten-horned beast represents Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greece, for the five have fallen. The one that is, is Rome, uh, the, the empire in John's day, and the one that will come but must remain a short time is the revived Roman Empire. So that's a traditional view of Revelation 17. And I would say that's, there's a lot of issues that I have, questions I have right now. Number one, why wouldn't those be the same as Daniel 7, okay? If Going back to Revelation 13, we see a seven-headed beast coming out of the sea, uh, names of blasphemy on the heads, all the things that we saw uh, in, in Daniel 7, the, except they are combined. Remember, Daniel 7 had a, a lion, a bear, a four-headed leopard, and a diverse beast with ten horns, 
if you combine all those things, what you get is exactly what you see in Revelation 13. A beast coming out of the sea with seven heads, four for the leopard, one for the lion, one for the bear, one for the diverse beast, ten horns on the diverse beast. And that looks like a leopard, a lion, and a bear, and it has names of blasphemy on its head that goes to war against the saints and exists for three and a half years. So there seems to be no ambiguity that we're talking about the same thing in Daniel 7. But here, now in Revelation 13, as with just about any view, has problems here. Uh, now they say, well, let's go ahead and say that Daniel 7 has nothing to do with that, and let's just add Egypt and Assyria to it. And they have to do that to get to five, right? So if you did... If they, for example, said five have fallen, one is, and they were trying to maintain the thing that they said in Revelation or Daniel chapter seven, then they'd have to say, then they'd have too few, uh, because really only Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece would have fallen, uh, and one is Rome, and one will yet to be revived Rome. So they need to just come up with two others, so they get Egypt and Assyria. Some people do some funny business. Some people try to say uh, Medea and Persia are two different kingdoms, but that still leaves you one other one you got to find. So they'll throw either Egypt and Assyria in there or do something else. I mean, it's all very, you know, maybe that the answer is somewhere in the minutia there, but there is a lot of funny business being done there with no reason to do it. And I think that's kind of my problem because if it is... If the criteria, well, you know, should be something like that, we do need to add two more. Maybe the problem is that nobody's just explaining why it is that we need to add Egypt and Assyria. I know, I know, people will, will throw out a line or two. You know, these are the 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 instances in which Satan, you know, did something bad or you know whatever, some kind of general thing that's not backed up with scripture about why the seven heads needs to be specifically Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Medo Persia, Greece, Rome, and revived Rome. What you know. If you're going to take it away from Daniel 7, even though Revelation 13 seems to be so clear that it has to be, in some sense, about Daniel 7, then then why just throw it away and come up with two? It at least give me a good reason for, for what the two that you chose. Um, and yeah, you can come up with a good reason. These are other kingdoms that were bad or maybe even controlled Israel or uh, you know some other thing, but just make it, give me something to believe you about there. Um, another problem with this is that it would divorce this completely from the resurrection of a man back in Revelation 13. So here you're not only saying, well, this isn't the same as Daniel 7, but you're also saying it's not the same as Daniel or Revelation 13 in the same book. Because there, one of the heads was clearly a man that got the deadly wound, that, that was healed, etc., etc., and we could walk through that whole thing that it kind of has to be a man. If now you're saying that the head is not a man and it's just a kingdom, then and that's why you need it to revive your Rome, Roman Empire, and that's what they think that's about. Then, And this is coming from people who, in Revelation 13, also teach that that's talking about a literal, literal resurrection, or at the very least, a resurrection that seems to be a resurrection, but it's just fake, done with whatever, magic or trickery or something. Uh, David Guzik is one that does that, and I love David Guzik. I think he's one of my favorite commentators. He's he come has done a commentary on every book in the Bible, so it's easy to find out what he believes on everything. This is one of the reasons I pick on him so much. It's because he's just one of the few people that I can go for free to check out everything that he believes on a certain issue, and he believes, yeah, the Revelation 13 is talking about a resurrection, and then yet here he's like, well, now they're nations, and you know whatever. And to his credit, he ends this whole section by saying, look. There are problems with this viewpoint as well. 
talking about his viewpoint, view, viewpoint. So some have taken this seven as symbolic. That's all he says. Symbolic of what? I don't know. And he concludes, this plainly is a difficult passage. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so he knows that calling out just, just Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Medio Persia, Greece, and revived Rome with no real reason to, other than this is just what they think this is talking about. And I think to their credit, a lot of people are just working backwards from when John says one is. And they say, well, if one is, it's probably talking about Rome. So let's just fill in the blanks. Let's come up with, with bad empires that have biblical whatever. Uh, obviously, my, my contemporaneous beast view has a ton of problems with this too. Because here, in, I'm saying that Daniel 7, uh, or I have said in the other commentaries that the Daniel 7 was talking about contemporaneous beasts, beasts that arrive, uh, rise out of the sea at the same time. When it's even, even the verses that people try to say work against that, the, the, the beasts that were before it, for example, in Daniel 7, well, that word before is in the spatial sense, not the temporal sense. So even the things that they, they try to use against it seem to suggest that he's, these beasts are before it, i.e. in front of it at that time, let alone all the sort of temporal things. We'll, we'll talk about when we talk about Daniel 7, but the point is I believe that that make, made the best sense of them, those four beasts being seemingly combined into one beast in, in Revelation 13 was because it it made sense of the wars in Daniel 11 in which he conquers all those Mediterranean and, and uh, empires, Egypt and Libya and all and Assyria and that whole, most of the nations that exist in these various kingdoms anyway, he, he that conquest is con, you know, conquering the beat, the, the lion and the leopard and the, and whatever. But now what do I do if I want to remain consistent here? Well, five of those heads have to be fallen. Well, well, okay, but then I have to try to split up the foreheads of the, the the leopard versus one of the lion or the bear, and I have no real good reason to do that. I have to assume this is some sort of weird politics going on in the end times or something like that. There's other issues with that too. So, so that's not uh, workable, I don't think, either. I don't know. I don't really know, but I do want to figure this out, and I think maybe the answer could be something like the traditional view uh, but it needs to be explained. Somebody needs to show their work of why they get this and why it's okay to divorce it from, say, Daniel 7 or whatever, if that's the way that it has to happen. Now, the uh, Islamic Antichrist version of this, I believe, is just about uh, the worst possible answer to this question. And I cover every aspect of this in my book, The Islamic Antichrist Debunked, which is for free uh, now. And in fact, I just made it an additional way to get it uh, in addition to the audiobook. All my books now, including my Daniel Commentary, Mystery Babylon, False Christ, are available or will soon be uh, converted uh, to uh, HTML text, which is easily able to navigate. You can go to BibleProphecyText.com. Uh, this is me just mentioning that the website's not quite done or anything. Uh, sorry, Eric, but uh, yeah, so that you can go there and look at uh, this information on uh, on the Islamic Antichrist thing because I go into a lot more detail than I'm going to go into now. If this is a view that you hold and you want to know all the details of this, go check that out or just get my book, Islamic Antichrist Debunked, uh, from Amazon or something like that. But anyway, so in in that view, in back in Daniel two, uh, they say that Babylon. The, the statue is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and the Islamic Empire. Now here, they're specific. The Islamic Empire from 632 A.D. to 1923 or something like that. And, uh, you know, I go through my book and all the different reasons why that's bad. But I think one of the big ones is why why skip Rome, you know? 
Um, in every other scenario, especially in that one in Daniel 2, they, they, they're, they seem to be nations that conquered one another, right? Uh, Medo-Persia conquered Babylon. Greece conquered Medo-Persia. And then where's Rome that's supposed to conquer Greece? They just skipped Rome altogether. It just, it makes no sense to skip Rome there. Uh, at, at least Daniel 8 skipping Rome and just ending it. Uh, this one just skips it and, and, and appends another less important uh, empire to it because I would say, I mean, the importance is less about the what I think about the Islamic empire, but more about in terms of prophecy because Daniel's focus was essentially pre-70 AD. We have a big prophetic gap from 70 AD onward to the start of the 70th week whenever that starts in which the Bible is more or less unconcerned with the empires that rise and fall in that period. I mean, the, the British empire or whatever, uh, is not a concern to the Bible because it almost seems to be about the control of the temple. And at least that's the way that Daniel 9 seems to suggest. It's really the story of the temple of which stopped in 70 AD and became, and everything essentially becomes irrelevant until it is built again at the beginning of the uh, 70th week. But nevertheless, uh, so why skip Rome? Joel says we should skip Rome. It doesn't matter that we skip Rome because he says, what about, and I'm talking about Joel Richardson, the writer of Islamic Antichrist, um, books. He says, what about the Parthians, for example? There was a Parthian empire that we skipped, uh, but that's a really bad argument because wasn't, you know, Parthia wasn't a world empire. It didn't conquer the one preceding it. It didn't conquer Greece. It didn't conquer Rome or whatever. It sort of overlapped both of them, actually. And it never controlled Israel, which I think, again, might be the thing that connects some of those other empires. But Parthians were just, they're not even in the same ballpark of this. So saying, well, it's okay to skip Rome because you didn't mention the Parthians. Well, they're just, that's, not, that's not even in the same ballpark. Uh, interestingly, Joel does co- uh, include in Revelation 17 in his list Rome there after Greece. But there it's because he has to, because it says five of the fallen one is. And if he wants to remain consistent, he has to make Rome follow Greece there. But but he doesn't have it follow it here. So anyway, um, I would say that's a big problem with that. In Daniel 7, um, he says that, again, he kind of takes the same view. It's the same thing. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and the Islamic Empire. Um, again, why skip Rome here? Why just append the Islamic Empire there? Joel says in this case, it was more destructive than the Romans. Because if you in Daniel 7, it talks about the beast having iron teeth and destroying people empires and whatever. And Joel says, well, the Roman empire wasn't all that destructive, you know? And again, I mean, that's a kind of subjective thing to say. Obviously Rome was incredibly destructive. It wiped entire cities off the map and entire people off the map. It was brutal. The the quote from, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they create a, a wasteland and call it peace. Yeah. Both empires were similar in the sense that they preferred not to destroy people. They preferred to incorporate them into the empire and use their resources, etc., get them paying taxes. But they also destroyed them when they, when they, you know, so if you want to do a body count, I'm not sure who would win or who even has those numbers. But to say, to say, to, to, to de- defend the idea that we're skipping Greece, even though it's obvious that that's the way that the Bible is doing this in other places. One empire is conquering another empire. Daniel 8's a really good example of that, right? The Medo-Persians, of, I mean, Greece conquered the Medo-Persians, which is why they would be 
uh, following one another in this list is that one conquers the other. The same thing with the Babylon Medo-Persia. I think that's explicit in Daniel 2, right? The, 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 the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, which is why they're the next medal on the statue. So there's this great precedent of that. So to skip Rome and, and, and say that's okay because Rome wasn't all that destructive, or then his next thing that he says here, Rome did, wasn't as blasphemous as the Islamic Empire because the, 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 the blasphemy is brought out in Daniel 7 about this, this last beast. And he says, oh, it wasn't all that blasphemous. You know, the Islamic Empire was more blasphemous, so that's, therefore it's a better fit. And again, I think that's kind of subjective. You might even be able to make a case that the Islamic Empire is more blasphemous, but you wouldn't be able to make the case that the Roman Empire wasn't blasphemous. Um, certainly, uh, a deification of the emperors was a integral part of the Roman system, uh, not to mention all the pagan gods and the pagan worship and the sacrifice that they did and required in terms of the citizens of Rome, that is to say, the pinch of incense. And that's to say nothing of the aberrant things that the people like Nero, who were particularly blasphemous and killed a lot of Christians, etc. But in any, in any case, it's like a shade of gray. And to say one is less blasphemous than the other, therefore, that's why it's okay to... It's not as though he's just choosing another one out of a hat. He's saying he's, he's getting rid of a really well-established reason for one to come after the other and saying... Well, we know in history that the Islamic Empire did not come after Greece. Rome did. So you got to have a better reason than, well, Rome wasn't as blasphemous as the Islamic Empire. That's just That just doesn't do it. But the real problem with this, and where you really know that he's got a bad interpretation here, uh, is in Revelation 17. And I'd say that you know applies to me too, basically. Every... Everybody that has an interpretation here usually has to pay up in Revelation 17. It just so happens that the Islamic Antichrist situation ends up uh, uh, paying a higher bill than others do. So in Revelation 17, the five that have fallen one is, etc., they would say is Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome is the one that is, and the Islamic Empire is the one that's going to come, and then they have another revived Islamic Empire. So they have one more empire than pretty much any any view, which I just it just doesn't work in the text. I'll talk about that in a minute, but but you can see on the one hand they're basically doing the same thing that the others are doing. They're adding Egypt and Assyria out of nowhere. They have uh, divorced this from Daniel seven, um, like the others do. Uh, this can't be the same thing as Daniel 7 because Egypt and Assyria are involved. But in the Islamic uh, Empire case, if you if you saw what he did here, he says the one that is is Rome. We talked about he has to do that here. That's kind of what messed him up in, uh, in Daniel 7. But he says the one that is is Rome. The one that... Let me read what, what the text says first. Um, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, that is Rome, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Only a little while. The one that comes after Rome has not yet come. But when it does come, it must remain only a little while. In Joel's case, the Islamic Empire comes next, which lasted for 1,300 years. That is longer than Babylon, Medo-Persia, probably Assyria combined. Um, it's definitely one of the longest reigning empires in the history of the world. That does not fit of a little time. And remember, he's got one after that. He would like the revived Islamic Empire. He could say, that one might be a little time, but that's not what the text says. The text says one is, the other 
has not yet come. When he does come, he must remain only a little while. That has to be the one that comes after Rome. And that's why most views have the revived Roman Empire next. They're not adding uh, another empire that needs to get revived later. They're putting the revived thing after the one that is. Um, the next one after Rome has to be the one that lasts a, a short time. So it goes five that have fallen, one is, and the Antichrist kingdom later on. So whatever is past the one is, has to be the one that remains a short time, i.e. the Antichrist kingdom. You can't just shoehorn another 1,300 years in there. Um, anyway, I go through more stuff on that in the book uh, about why I think it, it goes against the uh, pronouns and the angels' interpretation and everything in this passage. I think that the speaking of the eighth, and when he's of the seven, but is of the eighth, is a, uh, speaking of the Antichrist himself and his resurrection, which I think couldn't be any more clear. Again, that's in the book. It's in the, the, the if you go to BibleProphecyText.com, where I have all my books for, for free, you can, you can read all about it there. I talked a little bit about it in the last podcast, but that's an actually an interesting thing. I think this is very heavy on the, the mortal wound that the the head of the beast gets, or one of the heads of the beast gets, that's reiterated several times in this passage, all, really all throughout the book of Revelation. He had the wound by the sword and did live, and various other aspects of the one that is and and uh, and was and is not, etc. Um, I would say that that has to be a reference to the Antichrist himself. And it, it actually brought up an interesting point, specifically with Joel Richardson, because in order to get to this, he has to completely divorce. I talked about this with the other revived Roman empires. They'll at least admit, well, it has to be the resurrection or at least a fake resurrection or give some lip service to that in Revelation 13. Um, and yes, it causes them problems when they get here to Revelation 17, but they still, they still don't just say it doesn't exist. Joel Richardson, in his latest books has said it doesn't exist. He basically says, you know, in, in, which is interesting because in his first book, The Islamic Antichrist, he had took the 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 view that yes, the the in Revelation 13, the deadly wound of the of the beast's head was talking about the Antichrist, but he says that uh well it can't be uh the resurrection because Satan can't raise the dead or whatever. So it has to be some kind of fake resurrection, and he sort of taught that version of it. But in the new, the new version of it, he completely just says that none of that stuff even happens. That's all about nations. Not even one uh, iota of this is about a person. It's all about nations. And I, I get it now why he had to do that because it's to try to make Revelation 17 fit with this whole thing. It has to not be about a person, which is really difficult when you read any of this because number one, the angel says these are seven kings. Uh, and then it goes on to say, he, he, the ten, or the they, they, he, he. It's talking about a person. And yes, I get that it's talking about sometimes kings and kingdoms. And some of that is to be understood that way, as I've argued in the last podcast. I don't think you can get away with being taking a hard stance on everything means king and everything means kingdom. And this one, you have to be fluid on it. But you can't do the reverse of it either. You can't say, well, this is just kingdoms and not kings, especially when the Bible rebukes you and the angel tells you these are kings and then goes on to describe them as human pronouns. It's not as though the Bible, is, even in Revelation, isn't capable of talking about the something in the, in, in the it pronoun to give you more of the nation sense of it. But it also has a very specific time when it starts to use pronouns in terms of he does this, he does this, he does this to to make you think, hey, this has to be a, a reasonably a human because of the pronoun situation. Um, anyway, 
So I don't think that that's a good uh, way to do this either. So I, I have to say this, though. I think that I am softening on some of the aspects of the traditional view, specifically of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. I want to talk at length about Daniel 2 when we get to it, when I do a podcast on that, because I think there are some pros to it. There are some interesting things that absolutely have to be considered, um, things that I don't think are being talked as much about. And I like the idea of just going into this completely fresh, just don't have a single dog in the fight and see where it leads. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 